can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. It's a test. It's a test. It's a test. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Testing Thursdays with Wayne Ivis. It's good to have you all back, and hope you're all ready to learn something. I'll learn you some education. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, um, when you talk about testing, really, I mean, everybody has their own little technique. Um, that's the best way to put it. That helps them test the water. But there are a lot of um, generalities when you're coming, rather when you're talking about testing, that everybody should be doing on a on a regular basis. And these are little techniques, tricks of the trade, whatever you want to call them, that will help you ensure that you get the right answer and not a guess. <laughs> that's the best way to describe it. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. These are the techniques that, that you should be doing on every time you test water, uh, regardless of what it is you're testing for, that will help you with your uh, interpretation of the results to make sure that your customer's water is safe and to, to use. Okay, so, so let's go ahead and get started. Probably the number one thing that, that I always tell people, and yes, I'm looking off to the... Um, off to the left because I have some notes on another monitor, so I don't miss anything. But the one that I, I kind of want to beat in your head is read the damn instructions. Sorry, didn't mean to say damn. Or read the darn instructions. That's why they're written, so that you know what to do. Please don't assume that you know what you're doing. You probably don't. When it comes to chemistry, uh, or the odds are what you think you know is not right, and you're going to get the wrong answer. Um, I've been doing this for 40, 50 years. I know what I'm doing. You'd be surprised how many of those kind of calls I get. And it turns out they've been doing the test wrong for that whole time. And when I tell them they've been doing it wrong, they you know, turn into a Karen or Ken. Hang up. But please read the instructions. This is critically important. If for some reason you change test kit manufacturers because instructions are, are not the same across the board, or if you're doing a test you've never done before, okay, please don't think you know what you're doing. Again, you don't, okay? Read the instructions before you do the test. Make sure you have everything there for you in order to do the test right. It's kind of important. Yeah. And also pisses me off when people don't read the instructions I wrote. Anyhow. Okay, please read the instructions. The, the second thing is that when you're collecting water samples, always, 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 always use a plastic container. Uh, if you're not leaning into the pool 
you know, and collecting your water sample by hand, but you need to collect a larger, like a, you know, have a, a, a sample bottle or something like that, please make sure it's plastic. You don't want to use glass. This is just simple common sense because when that glass bottle is dropped, not if, when it is dropped, it shatters. And what happens to that shattered glass? It gets in the pool. What happens when it gets into the pool? The pool is shut down. What happens when the pool is shut down? You lose money. You lose patrons. You lose users. Okay, You lose your mind. <laughs> so use a little common sense and use a plastic container. Now, ideally, that plastic container should be opaque, uh, particularly if you're taking your water sample back to a lab or a test kit or, or something where you're transporting it from where you collected the water at to where it's being tested. The reason you want it to be opaque is that sunlight can penetrate translucent and transparent plastic bottles and can possibly degrade the values that are in the bottle itself. So you want to make sure it's opaque. Another good technique is in a, in a um, ideal world, you should be taking a sample from the deep end of the pool and the, and the shallow end of the pool, add, getting the results, adding them together, dividing by two to get an average. Who has the time for that? So as far as where to take your sample, I usually tend to try to go into the middle of the pool, um, just about where the slope might start towards the deep end if there is one. But the most important thing, the two most important things when you're talking about collecting a sample is go down into the water at least 18 inches, which is the bend in your elbow, bend an elbow, and away from a return line. Well, why do you, why do you go down 18 inches? Well, the first four to six inches of surface water, um, sunlight can penetrate uh, that, that, that deeply into the water. And you might, if you're just skimming the top of the surface and collecting a sample that way, you're probably not getting a, a, a good representative um, value for whatever it is you're testing for. Okay, 18 inches down. You want to be away from a return line for, again, obvious reasons, because the return line is returning something back into the pool, whether it's you know acid that correct a pH or alkalinity or or you know concentrated chlorine from an erosion feeder. But if you collect your sample right in front of the return line, you're going to get a really bad result. So you want that water well mixed before you take your sample. So I usually try to stay away at least a couple feet, if not more, if I can, from a return line. So, you know, 18 inches down, away from a return line. Now, I know some very ingenious service people who, if they have a customer who has a, a diving board, they'll go out on the diving board and um, toss a, a, a very clean bucket or some kind of container um, and let go down to just above the main drain and collect a sample there. That's, that would be ideal, but you know, is it practical? Yeah, not necessarily. Not everybody's got a diving board whatever, but um, again, away from a return line down 18 inches. And guess what? Test strip people. That's the same thing for you guys too. You just dip that little strip into the surface of the water. You're not getting the right answers. Don't even think you are. You're not. <sighs> collect your sample from 18 inches below and away from return line, and then use that container to te test strip it to get the right answer. 
Okay. Make sure that the, the temperature of the water is between 30 and 59, 30 degrees Fahrenheit to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but it's, but it's worth it. Um, anything above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, you're cooking the reagents. Uh, and when you cook a reagent, you can get some really, really weird color development. Now, if you're testing hot tubs, obviously it's going to be warmer than 90 or else it's not really a hot tub. So what do you do? Well, um, you collect your sample in an opaque container and just let it sit for a minute or two. It cools down very quickly in that, in that small container, okay, and then test it. Now, what happens if your sample water is colder than 50, like at the beginning of the season, for example? Well, what happens in that case is that your chemical reactions are much slower. They, they actually happen, but they're so slow that you don't think they're happening. Okay, so how do you correct that? Well, again, collect your sample, but let it sit out, uh, let it warm up a bit, get it out of that cold environment, and then that should be good to go. And again, the same holds true for test strip people. You got to do it. Um, When you're using a comparator block or a test cell, it is critical that they be rinsed out completely in between testing. And this also includes caps. If you happen to have any, like the, the Taylor comparator block uh, has the little, uh, the big cap and the little cap on, on the standard block, make sure they're rinsed out too, because even a small residual amount of something can interfere with the next test. So you want to rinse them out thoroughly. I usually rinse them out at least three times. And do I use pool water? Absolutely, because remember there's, you know, lots and tens and thousands of gallons of water in that pool water, and you have one drop. <laughs> of something or so in, in that sample. So, so you're good to go for that one to rinse out. When you're reading the instructions and it says to use a 25 mil sample, please use a 25 mil sample. You'd be surprised how many people don't think they know better. Okay. Again, follow the instructions. Okay. Do what they're asking you to do or telling you to do. If you, if you have a little bit more water than this, okay, let's go back. Say the test you're doing requires a 25 mil sample. If you add less than 25 or more than 25 and it's a drop test, you're going to get a wrong answer. It's simply because there's not, there's either too much or not enough sample based on the method to use the method to test that water for whatever it is you're testing it for to get a right answer. It's going to be off. And it could be off enough that it could mess up your treatment uh, protocol. Okay, so make sure it's right. Now, sometimes when you add uh, sample water to a test cell or a comparator block, you get this little curve, okay? It's called a a meniscus curve, and it's not the the tendon in your knee. No, 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 no. Uh, It's called a meniscus curve. If that happens, don't panic. (laughs) You want the bottom of that curve to fall on the line where you need to have your sample at. So, for example, again, you use a 25 mil sample of water. The curve falls, the bottom of the curve stops at 25. Yay, that's what you want. You don't want the top of the curve to be at 25. Like, say, this is 25, and you have your curve, and the curve goes like that, okay? It's it's touching your 25 mark. But what if it's more like this? Okay, that's not good. Okay, you want to make sure that the bottom of the curve is at that mark where you want your sample water to be. 
uh, having it under in the top of the curve, you're going to get less amount of water. You're going to get a wrong answer. Okay. It happens. It, it happens all the time. Um, when you're doing color matching, there's a thing called interpolation. It probably, you might have seen this sometimes, or if you've ever attended one of my seminars or, we or webinars at trade shows and whatnot. But I talk about this. This is when you're doing a color matching test. And the color that develops falls between two colors on your, on your comparator block or whatever it is you're using. <clears throat> you have to interpolate um, what the value is. And so how do you do that? Well, if, more often than not, it's pretty easy. So say you're doing a pH test and the color falls between a pH of 7.4 and 7.6. What's the color? 7.5, the median. The median, rather. But what if you're using a system where the, the values between two standards are much wider? Let's take a test strip, for example, and you're trying to do an alkalinity test. There might be on the, on the printed color chart a standard color at, say, uh, 50, then 80, then 150, then 200, then 250. But the color falls between you know, 180 and 150. You'd have no way of knowing what that actual value is unless you have some kind of a test strip reader. You don't, okay? You have to try to interpolate okay, what the answer is. On a test strip, it's very, very difficult, almost impossible to do. On a liquid test, depending upon what it is you're testing and the width of the of the values on your comparator system, it might be a little bit easier. But that's called, this is called interpolation. So the wider the range on your, your color matching system, the more difficult it is to interpolate a value for a color. The shorter the range, the more narrow, it's a lot easier, like a pH range. Um, when you're doing the test and the test tells you to add five drops of something, adding six is not a good thing. More is not better. Never is better when you're talking chemistry and you're talking testing. Okay. Add whatever the number of drops is the that the instructions tell you to add. Don't think more is better. It is not. It's a waste of time and money. Um, it's a, uh, and it's, you're going to get a wrong answer or you may get a wrong answer. Let's put it like that. Um, the other thing too, is that if you're doing a drop test, you might want to take a look at um, uh, the size of the drop itself. Um, so this is why when you hold a comparator block, for example, and have a drop test, okay, and you're holding your comparator block, you want that reagent bottle to be straight up and down. Straight up and down, okay? The reason is <coughs> the dropper tip is designed to deliver a certain number of drops per milliliter. And that's what the tests are based on. If you hold that, that reagent bottle diagonally, you're actually, big hands, big hands, ah! Uh, you actually decrease the size of the drop. So you're adding more, tinier drops that result in a false high answer. Okay, you want to follow? Let me do that one again. Decreasing the size of the drop lets you add more tinier drops to the sample to get the same change, which can result in a false high answer. Let me give you an example. Again, with what I, I have been familiar with, Taylor's dropper tips are designed to deliver 25 drops per milliliter, give or take a drop. 
that's what they are. Okay. If I held it, that bottle off to the side, it's going to decrease the size of that drop. Okay. So you're not adding enough of the reagent to effective change. So you're adding more of the drops to do that. That's where you get that false high answer from. Now, sometimes have you ever held a bottle, a reagent bottle, and the drops start coming out of it? You're not even squeezing the bottle. Okay. This happens a lot. And it's because there's a little bit of static electricity buildup in the air. And all you need to do is take a, a clean paper towel or a cloth and wipe around the tip. Not, not over the tip, but around the tip. Boy, that sounded weird to say. <laughs> yeah, I went there. Uh, wipe, <laughs> wipe around the tip to discharge that static electricity. Um, uh, you don't want to go over the tip because it could be introducing a little bit of material into the hole that's in the in the uh, driver tip itself. Now, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, what can happen is that there's a little bit of debris that gets inside the dropper tip. That means that you've touched the tip to something it shouldn't be touched. Again, that sounded really weird. Uh, I can hear Rudy and Heather snickering in the background. Anyhow, um, um, what can happen is a little bit of debris in there. Now, how do you how do you get rid of it? Do not stick a toothpick or a pin or anything in the little hole. Because the bore, which is the hole itself, the size of the bore, <laughs> is of a certain diameter. And if you start changing that diameter, you're going to change the size of the dropper tip. The easiest way to dislodge anything is to snap off the tip and run it under warm running water. Warm, not hot, not cold, warm, upside down. And that's usually sufficient enough to, to dislodge it. If it doesn't, just call the manufacturer. We'll throw some in an envelope. Send them out to you. It's 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 not a biggie, okay. But it does happen sometimes. Not all the time, just sometimes. Probably one of the biggest no nos or no nos uh, technique issues that I come across is that people think that they're creative, and they they might come up and say, "Well, I used manufacturers X's." pH indicator, and I got a completely different answer when I use that in your comparator black with what your reagent is. Why? You know, don't you guys know what you're doing? That kind of thing. That was my attempt at a very bad Karen invitation. Let me talk to the manager. Uh, no, there, there's a reason for it. Test kit reagents are not interchangeable. I need to repeat that. Test kit reagents are not interchangeable. Even though they're called the same thing, doesn't mean that they have the same strength or are designed for the same sample size or get the same color development. It doesn't work like that. Okay, They are not interchangeable. So if there was a Lamotte phenol red indicator for pH testing and a Taylor phenol red for pH testing, you couldn't use Taylor's reagent in a Lamotte kit or a Lamotte reagent in a Taylor kit and expect to get the right answer because they're completely different strengths design, designed for completely different ranges. It doesn't work like that. Now, even within the same manufacturer, if a reagent is the, says it's the same thing, don't interchange them because they won't work. Perfect example. Hello, Taylor again. 
Taylor makes four different, four different pH indicators using phenol red. Four. One of which you're probably very familiar with, good old reagent number four. Okay. But we make a phenol red reagent for our residential kits, a phenol red, uh, red reagent for our slide comparators, uh, for the for the for the bigger commercial kits. There's a phenol red reagent for our colorimeter. None of them are interchangeable. Okay, you can't use a number four with a number 14, or that kind of thing. I'm not going to bore you with part numbers if you don't use a Taylor kit. But just know that even if it's called the same thing within the same manufacturer, don't assume it's going to do the same thing. Order what is needed for that particular kit. If you're not sure, call. I, I can't begin to tell you the number of calls I would get every week from somebody with the same scenario. I went into a retail store to buy some more reagent number four. They didn't have any or claim they didn't have any. 14 was there and the guy behind the counter said, oh, it's the same thing. See the same name. It's fine. No, it's not fine. <coughs> not fine at all. You're not going to get the right answer because the comparator system on a residential Comparative block is completely different than that uh, on a, um, a regular complete kit, 2000 series test kit. Completely different. Different strengths, different sample sizes, everything. You're not going to get the same. Looking at extra drops of number 14 to get the same. No, you can't. Doesn't work like that. Okay. It's called chemistry. <laughs> um, let's see if there's anything else. Oh, ever done a drop test and you're not sure? that you've reached endpoint, it happens, happens a lot. So how do you know what the right endpoint is? Well, I've always recommended that people do something called the one drop rule. And what that means is that, say you're doing an alkalinity test and you know you need to go from green to red. Well, you get to red, but you're not, but it looks kind of pinkish and you're not really sure if it's the right red. You know, how red is red? Remember that from that podcast. Add one more drop, okay, of the reagent that cause, causes the color change. If the color does not change in the sample after you've added that one additional drop, that means that your drop count ended on the previous drop. If the drop, if the sample continues to change color, that means you haven't reached endpoint. You keep adding the drops until the color stops changing, okay then that's your endpoint color, okay? The one drop plus endpoint rule. Remember that. Um, this is not a testing technique. It's more of a common sense technique, but always wait at least, oh God, um, at least a turnover before you retest the water after you've added a treatment chemical. Uh, what's a turnover? Well, a turnover is not, you know, what mom, bakes in the oven, uh, a turnover is the amount of time it takes all the water to go through the circulation system, you know, the filter, et cetera, the pump, one time. That's it, just one time. Generally, it's anywhere from six to eight hours, okay? You want to make sure that whatever treatment chemical you've added is mixed and filtered and shot through at least one time before you test again to make sure 
that it's working, that, that whatever it is you added to affect a change has changed. Okay. So wait at least one turnover. Um, we talked about light before, you know, ideally it, you should be testing outdoors facing north. Don't face that. Don't have the sun facing you. you. Want it to be on your back or your shoulders, because the sun will alter how your eyes interpret colors. If you're testing at night and you don't have access to, to natural outside daylight, uh, fluorescent lights, LED lights are horrible. Um, but you got to work with what you got unless you can afford a daylight simulating lamp. Most budgets can't. Uh, so what do you do? Well, you you test in the same spot every time, so you're consistent. Okay, and where you where you're taking your sample. Um, it, some people find it very difficult to match colors with these kind of lights. Um, you also want to make sure that uh, every time you test all, all your 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 uh, comparator blocks, your caps, everything is rinsed out completely. I know I mentioned this before, but it's really important because any kind of a residual can really mess it up. Um, another technique that 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 you want to make sure that you're doing is that most comparator blocks um, that are that are manufactured are good for about two years um, because they're exposed to water, the environment, chemicals, treatment uh, reagents, things like that. The colors can fade a little bit, so we recommend that. that just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 